15. In by way of the Yablonoi Mountains, they had managed to obtain a rifle, and subsisted upon game they killed, and upon berries, roots, and the bark of trees. They escaped from the mines about midsummer, and hoped by rapid travel to reach the coast before winter overtook them. One of the men was killed by falling from a rock during the first month of the journey. The others buried their dead companion as best they could, marking his grave with a cross, though with no expectation it would again be seen by human eyes. Traversing the mountains and reaching the tributaries of the Aldon River, they found their hardships commencing. The country was rough and game scarce, so that the fugitives were exhausted by fatigue and hunger. They traveled for a time with the wandering dungas of this region, and were caught by the early snows of winter when the coast was still 200 miles away. They determined to wait until spring before crossing the mountains, and luckily while with the Tungus they were seen by a Russian merchant, who informed the authorities. Early in the spring they were captured and returned to their place of imprisonment. The region around the Yablonoi Mountains is so desolate that escape in that direction is almost impossible. By way of the post route to Lake Baikal it is equally difficult, as the road is carefully watched and there are few habitations away from the post villages and stations. No one can travel by post without a Paderoshnia, and this can only be procured at the chief towns and is not issued to an unknown applicant. I heard a story of a young Pole who attempted, some years ago, to escape from exile. He was teacher in a private family and passed his evenings in gambling. At one time he was very successful at cards, and gained in a single week 3,000 rubles. With this capital he arranged a plan of escape. By some means he procured a Paderoshnia not in his own name, and announced his intention to visit his friends a few miles away. As he did not return promptly search was made, and it was found that a person answering his description had started toward Lake Baikal. Pursuit naturally turned in that direction, exactly opposite to his real course of flight. He traveled by post with his Paderoshnia and reached the vicinity of Omsk without difficulty. Very injudiciously he quarreled with the drivers at a post station about the payment of 10 kopecks which he alleged was an overcharge. The Paderoshnia was examined in consequence of the quarrel and found applicable to a Russian merchant of the third class, and not for a nobleman, which he claimed to be. The station master arrested the traveler and sent him to Omsk, when his real character was ascertained. On the third day of captivity he bribed his guards and escaped during the night. He remained free more than a month, but was finally recaptured and sent to Irkutsk. At Nurchinsk I resumed my efforts to purchase a Tarantas, but my investigations showed the Nurchinsk market out of everything in the Tarantas line and no promise of a new crop. Fortune and Kaparaki favored me, and found a suitable vehicle that I could borrow for the journey to Irkutsk. I was to answer for its safety and deliver it to a designated party on my arrival there. The regulations did not permit, or at least encourage, time to invest in vehicles. A courier is expected unless in winter, to travel by the post carriages, all breakages in that case are at the expense of government, with the possible exception of the courier's bones and head, if a carriage breaks down he takes another and leaves the wreck for the station men to pick up, if he should buy a tarantass and it gave out he would be forced to leave it till he came again, or sell it at any price offered, nothing that relates to his personal comfort is allowed to detain a courier, he can stop only for change of team, hasty meals, and when leaving or taking dispatches on his route, sometimes a river gets high and refuses to respect his Paderoshnia, or a severe and blinding storm stops all travel, 
a courier's pass is supposed to command everything short of the elements, and I have a suspicion that some Russians believe it powerful with the elements. A courier ought to travel with only his baggage and servant, the former not exceeding two hundred pounds. Borstein had Cossack and baggage in proper quantity, adding me and my impedimenta. He was hardly in light moving order. I suggested that he drop me and I would trust to luck and my Tatarochnia. I had confidence in the good nature of the Russians and my limited knowledge of the language. I could exhibit my papers, ask for horses, say I was hungry, and was perfectly confident I could pay out money as long as it lasted. But my companion replied that an extra day on the route would make no difference in his catching the boat to cross Lake Baikal, and we would remain together until new difficulties arose. Having dined we visited the post station and ordered horses sent to the house of our host. The servants filled our tarantas with baggage, while their master filled us with champagne. The vehicle displayed the best carrying capacity, as it had room for more when our hearts were too full for utterance, save in a half-breath sigh. We rattled out of Kaparaki's yard and down to the Nurcha, where we had a ferry boat like the one at Stransk, though a little larger. The horses were detached and remained on the bank until the Tarantas was safely on board. There was not much room for them, but they managed to find standing places. By the time we were over the river it was night, and the sentinel stars had set their watch in the sky. We found the road in an unpleasant combination of snow, dirt, and water. We had four weak little horses and the driver told us they had made one journey to the station and back again since morning. In the Russian posting system the horses carry loads only one way. The driver takes your vehicle to the station, where he is allowed to rest himself and horses one hour and then starts on his return. In ordinary seasons when the traveling is good, each team of horses will make two round trips in 24 hours. This gives them from 50 to 70 miles daily travel, half of it without load and at a gentle pace. After the third station the road improved, the snow and mud diminishing and leaving a comparatively dry track. The stations were generally so uncomfortably hot as to put me in a perspiration, and I was glad to get out of doors. The temperature was about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and the air at night contained odors from the breath and boots of dormant musics. The men sleep on the floor and benches, but the top of the stove is the favorite couch. The stove is of brick as already described and its upper surface is frequently as wide as a common bed. Sometimes the caloric is a trifle abundant, but I have rarely known it complained of. I could never clearly understand the readiness and ability of the Russians to endure contrasts of heat and cold with upper complacence and without apparent ill effect. I have seen a Yemshik roused at midnight from the top of a stove where he was sleeping in a temperature of 85 or 90 degrees. He made his toilet by tightening his waist belt and putting on his boots. When the horses were ready he donned his cap and extra coat, thrust his hands into mittens, and mounted the front of a sleigh. The cold would be anywhere from 10 to 50 degrees below zero, but the man rarely appeared to suffer. In severe weather I hesitated to enter the stations on account of the different temperature of the house and the open air, but the Russians did not seem to mind the sudden changes. All natives of northern Siberia subject themselves without inconvenience to extremes of heat and cold. Major Osbasa told me that when the cold was 40 degrees below zero he had found the Koryaks in their yurts with a temperature 75 degrees above. They passed from one to the other without a change of clothing and without perspiring. At night they ordinarily slept in their warm dwellings, but when traveling they rested in the snow under the open sky. 
In his exploration around Panjins Gulf the Major saw a woman sleep night after night on the snow in the coldest weather with no covering but the clothing she wore in the day. She would have slept equally well if transferred to a hot room. The Yakuts and Tungus are equally hardy. Captain Wrangle gives examples of their endurance, especially of living in warm rooms or sleeping on the ice at a low temperature. Captain Cochrane, the English pedestrian, had a wonderful experience with some natives that guided him from the Lena to the Kalima. Though the captain was an old traveler and could support much cold and fatigue, he was greatly outdone by his guides. He could never easily accommodate himself to wide extremes of heat and cold, and I believe this is the experience of nearly all persons not born and reared under a northern sky. The road from Nurchinsk to Cheetah is through an undulating country, the hills in many places being high enough to merit the name of mountains. Sometimes we followed the valley of the Ingoda, and again we left it to wind over the hills and far away where the bluffs prevented our keeping near the stream. When we looked upon the river from these mountains the scene was beautiful, and I shall long retain my impression of the loveliness of the Ingoda. Mr. Collins described this valley nine years before me, and with one exception I can confirm all he said of its charms. He had the good fortune to travel in spring when the flowers were in bloom, whereas my journey was late in autumn. My English friend at Stratonsk spoke of this particular feature of the country and described the thick carpet of blossoms that in some places almost hid the grass from view. To compensate for the long and dreary winter nature spreads her floral beauties with lavish hand, and converts the once ice-bound region into a landscape of beautiful and fragrant flowers. The valley is fertile and well cultivated, villages and farmhouses being frequent. The road was excellent, wide, and well made, much labor had been expended upon it during the last two years. Its up and down ishness was not to my liking, as the horses utterly refused to gallop in ascending hills a mile or too long. The descent was less difficult, but unfortunately we could not have it all descent. We had equal quantities of rising and falling, with the difference against us that we were ascending the valley. Fortunately the road was dry and in some places we found it dusty. Late in the afternoon we halted for dinner, ordering the samovar almost before we stopped the tarantas. We ordered eggs and bread, and in hopes of something substantial Borstein consulted the mistress of the house. He returned with disgust pictured on his countenance. Have they anything? I asked. Nothing. Nothing at all? No, nothing but mutton. Nothing but mutton. Was entirely reconciled. When it came I made a fine dinner, but he took very little of it. There are great flocks of sheep belonging to the Buryats in eastern Siberia, and they form the chief support of that people. Curiously enough the Russians rarely eat mutton, though so abundant around them. Borstein told me it seldom appeared on a Siberian table, and I observed that both nobles and peasants agreed in disliking it, while at dinner we caught sight of a pretty face and figure, more to my fellow traveler's taste than the pasty resistance of our meal. After dinner we passed over a hill and entered a level region where we found plenty of mud. About midnight the Yemshik exhibited his skill by driving into a mud hole where there was solid ground on both sides. We were hopelessly stuck, and all our cries and utterances were of no avail. The Cossack and the driver could accomplish nothing, and we were obliged to descend from the carriage. We required our subordinates to put their shoulders to the wheels, though the operation covered them with mud. While they lifted we shouted to the horses, Borstein in Russian and I in French and English. Twenty minutes of this toil accomplished nothing. Then we unloaded all our baggage down to the smallest articles. Another effort and we were still in our slough of despond. 
I retreated to a neighboring fence and returned with a stout pole. The Cossack brought another, and we arranged to lift the four wheels to somewhere near the surface. It was my duty to urge the horses, and I flattered myself that I performed it. I had the driver's whip to assist my utterance, the others lifted, while I struck and shouted. We had a long pole, a strong pole, and a pole altogether, and pulled out of the depths. I attributed no small part of the success to the effect of American horse vocabulary upon Russian quadrupeds. When we reloaded it was refreshing to observe the care with which the Cossack had placed our pillows on the wet ground and piled heavy baggage over them. Borstein expressed his objection to this plan in such form that the Cossack was not likely to repeat the operation. The motion of the Tarantas, especially its jolting over the rough parts of the route, gave me a violent headache. The worst I ever experienced. The journey commenced too abruptly for my system to be reconciled without complaint. Nearly four months I had been almost constantly on ships and steamboats, all my land riding in that time not amounting to thirty miles. I came ashore at Stratinsk and began travel with a Russian courier over Siberian roads at the worst season of the year. It was like leaving the comforts of a Fifth Avenue parlor to engage in wood sawing. At every bound of the vehicle my brain seemed ready to burst, and I certainly should have halted had we not intended delaying at Chita. A Russian Yanshik centers his whole duty in driving his team. He gives no thought to the carriage or the persons inside, they must look out for their own interest. Let him come to a hill, rough or smooth, rocky or gravelly, provided there be no actual danger. He descends at his best speed. Sometimes the horses trot, and again they gallop down a long slope. Near the bottom they set out on a full run, as if pursued by a pack of hungry wolves. They dash down the hill, across the hollow and part way up the opposite ascent without slacking speed, the carriage leaps, bumps, and rattles, and the contents, animate or inanimate, are tossed violently, if there is a log bridge in the hollow the effect is more than electric, the driver does not even turn his head to regard his passengers, if the carriage holds together and follows it is all that concerns him, at first I was not altogether enamored of this practice, but as I never suffered actual injury and the carriages endured their rough treatment, I came in time to like it. As a class the Russian Yenshiks are excellent drivers, and in riding behind more than 300 of them I had abundant opportunity to observe their skill. They are not always intelligent and quick to devise plans in emergencies, but they are faithful and know the duties of their profession. For speed and safety I would sooner place myself in their hands than behind professional drivers in New York. They know the rules of the road, the strength and speed of their horses, and are almost uniformly good-natured. We reached Cheetah at five in the morning and roused the inmates of the only hotel. The sleepy Kilavik showed us to a room containing two chairs, two tables, and a dirty sofa. The Cossack brought our baggage from the Tarantas, and we endeavored to sleep. When we rose Borstein went to call upon the governor while I ordered breakfast on my own account. Summoning the Kilavik I began, Guy Samovar. Kai, sorry Kleeg, give the samovar, tea, bread, and sugar, this accomplished, I procured beefsteaks and potatoes without difficulty, I spoke the language of the country in a fragmentary way, but am certain my Russian was not half as bad as the beefsteak, chapter XXIV, Chita stands on the left bank of the Ingona, nearly 300 miles above Stransk, and is the capital of the Transbaikal province. For many years it was a small town with a few hundred inhabitants, but the opening of the Amur in 1854 changed its character. 
Below this point the Ingoda is navigable for boats and rafts, and during the early years of the Anwar occupation much material was floated down from Cheetah. In 1866 its population, including the garrison, was about 5,000. Many houses were large and well fitted, and all were of wood. The officers live comfortably, but complained of high rents. The governor's mansion is the largest and best, and near it is the clubhouse where weekly soirees are held. I attended one of these and found a pleasant party. There was music and dancing, tea drinking and card playing, gossip and silence at varied and irregular intervals. Some of the officers read selections from Russian authors, and others recited pieces of prose and poetry. There were dialogues, evidently humorous to judge by the mirth they produced, and there was a paper containing original contributions. The association appeared prosperous and I was told that its literary features were largely due to the efforts of the governor. There is a Gastini Devere or row of shops and a marketplace surrounded with Hexter stalls, much like those near Fulton Ferry. Desiring to replace a broken watch key I found a repair shop and endeavored to make my inquiries in Russian. Monsieur Parley Francais, Jake Rise, was the response to my attempt, and greatly facilitated the transaction of business. Before I left New York an acquaintance showed me a photograph of a Siberian, who proved to be the watchmaker thus encountered. Walking about the streets I saw many prisoners at work under guard, most of them wearing fetters. Though I became accustomed during my Siberian travels to the sight of chains on men, I could never hear their clanking without a shudder. The chains worn by a prisoner were attached at one end to bands enclosing his ankles and at the other to a belt around his waist. The sound of these chains as the men walked about was one of the most disagreeable I ever heard, and I was glad to observe that the Russians did not appear to admire it. The prisoners at Cheetah were laboring on the streets, preparing logs for house building, or erecting fences. Most of the working parties were under guard, but the overseers did not appear to push them severely. Some were taking it very leisurely and moved as if endeavoring to do as little as possible in their hours of work. I was told that they were employed on the eight-hour system. Their dress was coarse and rough, like that of the peasants, but had no marks to show that its wearer was a prisoner. There were between three and four thousand prisoners in the province of the Transbaikal. About one-sixth of them were at Chita and in its vicinity. The prisoners were of two classes political and criminal and their punishment varied according to their offense. Some were sentenced to labor in chains, and others to labor without chains. Some could not go out without a guard, while others had more freedom. Some were sentenced to work in prison and others were imprisoned without labor. Some were exiled to Siberia but enjoyed the liberty of a province, a particular district, or a designated town or village. Some were allowed a certain amount of rations and others supported themselves. In fact there were all grades of prisoners, just as we have all grades in our penitentiaries. The Polish Revolution in 1863 sent many exiles to the country east of Lake Baikal. Among the prisoners at the time of my journey there was a Colonel Zyklinski confined in prison at a village north of Cheetah. He had a prominent part in the Polish troubles, and was captured at the surrender of the armies. He served in America under McClellan during the Peninsular Campaign, and was in regular receipt of a pension from our government. The Transbaikal province is governed by Major General Dittmar to whom I brought letters of introduction. When Borstein returned from his visit he brought invitation to transfer our quarters to the gubernatorial mansion, where we went and met the governor. I found him an agreeable gentleman, speaking French fluently, 
and regretting the absence of Madame Didmar, in whose praise many persons had spoken. At dinner I met about twenty persons, of whom more than half spoke French and two or three English. A military band occupied the gallery over the dining room. When General Dittmar proposed the United States of America, Myers were greeted with one of our national airs. It was well played, and when I said so they told me its history. On hearing of my arrival the governor summoned his chief musician and asked if he knew any American music. The reply was in the negative. The governor then sent the bandmaster to search his books. He soon returned, saying he had found the notes of Hail Columbia. Is that the only American tune you have? Asked the general. Yes, sir. Have your band learned to play it by dinner time? The order was obeyed, and the American music accompanied the first regular toast. It was repeated at the club rooms and on two or three other occasions during my stay in Chile, and though learned so hastily it was performed as well as by any ordinary band in our army. The principal rooms in General Dittmar's house had a profusion of green plants in pots and tubs of different sizes. One apartment in particular seemed more like a greenhouse than a room where people dwelt. Whether so much vegetation in the houses affects the health of the people I am unable to say, but I could not ascertain that it did. The custom of cultivating plants in the dwellings prevails through Siberia, especially in the towns. I frequently found bushes like small trees growing in tubs, and I have in mind several houses where the plants formed a continuous line half around the walls of the principal rooms. The devotion to floriculture among the Siberians has its chief impulse in the long winters, when there is no outdoor vegetation visible beyond that of the coniferous trees. I can testify that a dwelling which one enters on a cold day in midwinter appears doubly cheerful when the eye rests upon a luxuriance of verdure and flowers. Winter seems defeated in his effort to establish universal sway. The winters in this region are long and cold, though very little snow falls. Around Chita and in most of the Transbaikal province there is not snow enough for good sleighing, and the winter roads generally follow the frozen rivers. Horses, cattle, and sheep subsist on the dead and dry grass from October to April, but they do not fare sumptuously every day. North and south of the headwaters of the Ingoda and Orion there are mountain ranges, having a general direction east and west. Away to the north the polar sea and the lakes and rivers near it supply the rain and snow clouds. As they sweep toward the south these clouds hourly become less and their last drops are run from them as they strike the slopes of the mountains and settle about their crests. The winter clouds from the Indian Ocean and Caspian Sea rarely pass the desert of Gobi, and thus the country of the Transbaikal has a climate peculiar to itself. During my stay at Cheetah a party was organized to hunt gazelles. There were 10 or 15 officers and about 20 Cossacks, as at Blagoveshchensk. Up to the day of the excursion the weather was delightful, but it suddenly changed to a cloudy sky, a high wind, and a freezing temperature. The scene of action was a range of hills five or six miles from town. We went there in carriages and wagons and on horseback, and as we shivered around a fire built by the Cossacks near an open work cabin, we had little appearance of a pleasure party. The first drive resulted in the death of two rabbits and the serious disability of a third. One halted within twenty steps of me and received the contents of my gun barrel. I reloaded while he lay kicking, and just as I returned the ramrod to its place the beast rose and ran into the thick bushes. I hope he recovered and will live many years. He seemed gifted with a strong constitution, and I heard several stories of the tenacity of life displayed by his kindred. The rabbit or hare Lepus variabilis abounds in the valley of the Amur and generally throughout Siberia. 
He is much larger than the New England rabbit I hunted in my boyhood, and smaller than the long-eared rabbit of the Rocky Mountains and California. He is gray or brown in summer and white in winter, his color changing as cold weather begins, no snow had fallen at you, but the rabbits were white as chalk and easily seen if not easily killed. The peasants think the rabbit a species of cat and refuse to eat his flesh, but the upper classes have no such scruples. I found him excellent in a roast or stew and admirably adapted to destroying appetites. Our day's hunt brought us one gazelle, six rabbits, one lunch, several drinks, and one smashed wagon. I saw a cheetah a chessboard in a box ten inches square with a miniature tree six inches high on its cover. The figure of a man in chains leaning upon a spade near a wheelbarrow, stood under the tree. The expression of the face, the details of the clothing, the links of the chains, the limbs of the tree, and even the roughness of its bark, were carefully represented. It was the work of a Polish exile, who was then engaged upon something more elaborate. Chessmen, tree, barrow, chains, and all, were made from black bread. The man took part of his daily allowance, moistened it with water, and kneaded it between his fingers till it was soft like putty. In this condition he fashioned it to the desired shape. When I called upon the watchmaker he told me of an American recently arrived from Kyoto. Two hours later while writing in my room I heard a rap at my door. On opening I found a man who asked in a bewildered air, American Skidoma? Dot. I responded, Parles du Francais? Was his next question. We, oui. Monsieur, Francais oh you anglais. Then you are the man I want to find. How do you do? It was the American, who had come in search of me. He told me he was born in England and was once a naturalized citizen of the United States. He had lived in New York and Chicago, crossed the plains in 1850, and passed through all the excitements of the Pacific Coast, finishing and being finished at Fraser's River. After that he went to China and accompanied a French merchant from Shanghai across the Mongolian steppes to Kyoto. He arrived in Chita a month before my visit, and was just opening a stock of goods to trade with the natives. He was about to begin matrimonial life with a French lady whose acquaintance he made in Kyoto. He had sent for a Catholic priest to solemnize the marriage, as neither of the high contracting parties belonged to the Russian church. The priest was then among the exiles at Nerchinsk Zavod, 300 miles away, and his arrival at Cheetah was anxiously looked for by others than my new acquaintance. The Poles being Catholics have their own priests to attend them and minister to their spiritual wants. Some of these priests are exiles and others voluntary emigrants, who went to Siberia to do good. The exiled priests are generally permitted to go where they please, but I presume a sharp watch is kept over their actions. When there is a sufficient number of Poles they have churches of their own and use exclusively their ownish service. The Germans settled in Russia, as well as Russians of German descent, usually adhere to the Lutheran faith. The Siberian peasants almost invariably speak of a Lutheran church as a German one, and in like manner apply the name Polish to Catholic churches. The government permits all religious denominations in Siberia to worship God in their own way, and makes no interference with spiritual leaders, minor sects corresponding to free lovers, shakers, and bodies of similar character, are not as liberally treated as the followers of any recognized Christian faith. Of course the influence of the government is for the Greek church, but it allows no oppression of Catholics and Lutherans, so far as I could observe. The Greek Church in Siberia and the established Church in England occupy nearly similar positions toward descending denominations. 
Three days after my arrival General Ditmar started for Irkutsk, preceded a few hours by my late traveling companion. In the afternoon following the General's departure I witnessed an artillery parade and drill, the men being Cossacks of the Transbaikal province. The battery was a mounted one of six guns, and I was told the horses were brought the day before from their summer pastures. The affair was creditable to officers and men, the various evolutions being well and rapidly performed. The guns were whirled about the field, and limbered, fired, dismounted, and passed through all the manipulations known to artillerists. At the close of the review the commanding officer thanked his men and praised their skill. He received the response, simultaneously spoken, We are happy to please you, or words of like meaning, at every parade, whether regular or Cossack. This little ceremony is observed, as the men marched from the field to their quarters they sang one of their native airs. These Cossacks meet at stated intervals for drill and discipline, and remain the balance of the time at their homes. The infantry and cavalry are subject to the same regulation, and the musters are so arranged that some part of the Cossack force is always under arms. After the review I dine with a party of 18 or 20 officers at the invitation of Captain Irifaith of the Governor's staff. The dinner was given in the house where my host and his friend, Captain Pantukin, lived, and Garson, the Emperor of Russia and the President of the United States were duly remembered, and the toasts in their honor were greeted with appropriate music. In conversation after dinner, I found all the officers anxious to be informed concerning the United States, the organization of our army, the relations of our people after the war, our mode of life, manners, and customs were subjects of repeated inquiry. On the morning of the 26th October, Captain Molostov, who was to be my companion, announced his readiness to depart. I made my farewell calls, and we packed our baggage into my tarantas, with the exception of the terrible trunk that adhered to me like a shadow. As we had no Cossack and traveled without a servant, there was room for the unwieldy article on the seat beside the driver. I earnestly advise every tourist in Siberia not to travel with a trunk. The Siberian ladies manage to transport all the articles for an elaborate toilet without employing a single dog house or Saratoga. If they can do without trunks, of what should not man be capable? Our leave-taking consumed much time and champagne, and it was nearly sunset before we left Chita. It is the general custom in Siberia to commence journeys in the afternoon or evening. 